Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am Lorraine Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. We are starting today with a personal story from Pamela Marshall. People with disabilities make up over 40% of the people who are homeless in America. I never imagined I'd be one of them. My name is Pamela Marshall and I'm a CSH Speak Up Advocate. In 2003, I was a single mom living in a two bedroom house with my two daughters. I was working as a hairstylist and the girls were doing well in school. Things in my life were going pretty decent for a change. My girls are both born by C-section, but in 98, when I had my youngest daughter, something weird happened. I ended up being in a lot of pain from the waist down, especially in my left leg. But even in pain, I had to press on. I had responsibilities. On July 15, 2003, I woke up in unbearable pain all over. I was so sick. My leg was three times the normal size and the pain was beyond unbearable. I made it to the emergency room and was admitted. I was diagnosed with a serious and recurring but treatable infection called cellulitis. The cause was a condition in which has no cure and no pain relief called lymphedema. I was devastated about it all but especially about not being able to go back to work. I stayed in the hospital a month, then went home and was bedridden another six months while my bills and my problems were piling up. Being no stranger to trauma, I had already started drinking at a very early age. But at that point, I was drinking and using heavier than ever before. Picking up new habits, abusing painkillers, trying but failing to ease the pain and the fear of what was to come. Like giving up my girls, That was the hardest. Even though I knew I couldn't take them where I was headed, my emotions along with everything else kept me in a downward spiral. When I made it to Skid Row in 2010, I was scared, alone, wracked with pain and guilt because in my mind, I'd failed. Shoot, I really needed to stay drunk and high to deal with that place. Because you see, at that time, I honestly felt like there was no hope for change. But one morning, I walked into the downtown women's center. I was dead tired and a woman at the desk saw me, not the outer shell of what I'd become. She saw me. She called me over to the desk and asked me, Pam, what's wrong? For the first time, I got really honest about my addiction. She told me that I was going to be all right. And it felt like she promised me that everything was going to be all right. She began to speak to me about complete recovery and affordable, supportive housing. These were the exact things I needed for a new start. Finally, seeing a way out, I went into the Castle West Treatment Program on October 12, 2012. I never looked back. From there, I went straight to a sober living home. I even had to return to Skid Row three and a half years sober. It was hard, but not as hard as before. You see, this time I came back with a totally different mindset and a new determination. I stayed at the Union Rescue Mission shelter for eight months. All the while, I refused to give up. Then I got my place the day before Thanksgiving of 2016. Talk about gratefulness. When I moved into my place, just being able to take care of my basic needs meant so much to me. It removed so much stress and things began to improve in my life, like my health and my self-esteem. I was able to focus, so I went back to college and took a few classes. When I was in the shelter and I was just about to get housed, it was in November, it was about to rain. There was a lady 
that I thought worked at the downtown women's center because she was a cook, but she was a cook because she was a volunteer. But I didn't know that she was homeless because she dressed so sharp. You know, this woman was standing by the church on 6th and San Pedro and she was crying. And I normally talk to her and she told me that someone had stole her clothes. And I was like, well, as tiny as you are down here, there's clothes resources anywhere. So don't worry, you'll get more clothes. And then she was like, I don't even have anywhere to stay. And I'm like, where are you staying at? I thought you worked at the downtown women's center. She said, no, honey, I sleep right here in front of the church. And I asked her how long she had been homeless. She had been on the streets for 18 years. And I told her, sweetie, it's about to rain. Why don't you come into mission with me? And she told me that she couldn't come into the Union Rescue Mission because it was too many people. They housed hundreds of women in the shelter at one given time. And she said it was just too much people in there for her to deal with, with her level of mental health issues. And I said, well, okay, if you can't come in there with me, then go across the street to the wine guard. I understand that they house people two to a room, sometimes one to a room, depending how, on how severe they are. So she followed my advice and she went to the wine guard center and they gave her a room. She stayed in the room by herself. And in less than two months, she had her housing. She got a place that's outside of Skid Row. She got a one bedroom apartment, bills paid for the first year. The next year she was paying $36 a month for rent. It was a rapid rehousing program. She didn't pay any utilities and they gave her a check for $5,000 for her furniture. And I was just amazed, like, you know, just telling someone like, hey, why don't you try this? And then they do it, you know, to hear the outcome is amazing. And I was going to LACC. So when I come out of school and I get off the bus, she would normally see me. And I asked her what she was doing down there because I heard she had got her place. She told me she was just there to thank me. And that was before I even started doing this work. It takes lived experience to be able to guide and direct somebody when you know what they're going through. It's not something you can get out of a book. Then I got a job as a peer advocate with Skid Row Housing Trust right down the block from me. Who knew that my pain had a purpose and that there was something just for me right there in that very place that I didn't want to be? It was like I needed to have that journey in order to do this work. My job has been to simply give back. I share my experience and resources with my clients. I encourage them that they can do anything that they want to do with a little determination, some structure, and the right support. And I'm not just telling them either. I'm showing them by example. What makes it easier to work with people when you have lived experience is because of the compassion. You understand where that person is and what they're going through. The level of trust that they're dealing with, you know, you know how to open up to the person. Once you open up to them, then you open up the road for them to open up to you. And it's just like, you know, it's a little give and take. It's kind of like you only know how to do it if you've been there. I'm able to share resources with people because I know about the places. I'm not telling them from something I Googled or I looked up in a catalog. I know about the places firsthand because I've either stayed there or someone that I love and I know stayed there and they know how the program works. Even though everything is housing first, the timelines are still kind of long for a person that's on the streets. For the person that's already housed, oh, it doesn't seem like it took you that long. Well, it took me eight months in the shelter, and that was a long time. But for a person who's like maybe a veteran or domestic violence or more of a, a severe condition, maybe sicker than I was, that's a very long time. I would like to shorten the times, the paperwork. 
the redundancy and the repetition of the paperwork is kind of hard for a person on the streets. It's like you're going through mountains of paperwork just to get somewhere and it's taking forever. I've recently been asked to sit on the board of directors for a community of friends. I've also been promoted to case manager. I'm learning grant writing on my job too. I also have an opportunity to sit on the board for another nonprofit organization. My life has improved so much since I got housing and it's actually better than ever. I've gotten my dignity back and I'm useful to society again. Can you do me a favor? From now on, when you see a person experiencing homelessness, please remember my story and believe me when I tell you that people on the streets have value and purpose. I know because I was one of them. Thank you. We are grateful to Pamela for sharing her moving story with us. We pray that she is able to continue her incredible advocacy for people who are still on the streets and that we all remember her story. Today, we have an interview with the amazing Kiris Jan Merrick. Kiris spoke at the Housing Justice Summit in January and challenged us to flip the script about mental health and human potential. Kiris is a fierce advocate for people with lived experience of mental health issues to actively lead mental health treatment. She is also the promoter of anything cool to enhance human existence and reminds us that there are many paths to recovery and wellness. Two disclaimers. Kiris joined us to share her personal ideas, and this interview does not reflect the opinions of her employer. We also recorded this interview in March at the very beginning of the pandemic. Welcome, Kiris, to the Housing Justice LA podcast. We thank you so very much for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom in this space with us today. Can you start off by sharing with us about your family and your background? Um, sure. Let me start by thanking you for asking me to come and talk with you all. It's really kind of an honor and I'm a little humbled and a little freaked out by it, but it's all good. So let's see. Um, so a little bit about myself. I'm an army brat. That's the way many people have described me, meaning um, I was brought up all over the world because my father was in the military. The work that he did had him stationed you know, in, in Europe and um, in Asia, and he would take the whole family. I have a brother with him wherever he went and we went. So um, much of my life was spent outside of the United States and then some of it also within the United States. So I have kind of a weird, interesting background. <laughs> um, my father is African-American and my mother is African-American and Muscogee Creek Indian. So uh, there's a lot of mixtures of culture also. We're kind of a mix mosh of interesting people, I would say. Yeah. Can you tell us also how you got into working on mental health? My career trajectory had no mental health in it as far as thinking of, um, you know, what did I want to be when I grow up? I really thought of myself as, oh, I'm going to be a mom and I'm going to have all these kids because traveling around the world, it was just me and my brother. And every three years or every four years, we'd have to make a whole new group of friends. So I just wanted to have my kids have all of these friends by having all of these kids until I saw how they were born. And I was like, yeah, no, that's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> I don't want to push out all of those kids. But I started my work in um, mental health because I myself have a mental health condition. And I didn't actually know that I could actually work in the field. I was really disappointed in the way that mental health care that I received. I was disappointed in it. I didn't feel like it really met my needs. I didn't feel like I was listened to. I met other people who felt the same. My family 
was very, very, very supportive. They never felt for a minute I couldn't achieve anything, where when I got my diagnoses, many of the providers told me all the things I couldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't do. And my parents kept telling me all the things I could do. I couldn't understand why that was happening and why that was happening to a very large group of people. So I first started as an advocate, kind of accidentally fell into being an advocate with NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness at my local chapter. It sort of catapulted from there. Once I I realized, wow, you can use your voice and your experience to help navigate and impact change, I really wanted to figure out how to change the system with other people or systems, because it's really more than one system. So that's how I started. And it just sort of keeps going. And I for some reason, can't get out. So because it's not done yet, the work's not done yet. Mm. I can appreciate that. Uh Although they gave you the diagnosis, and they told you what you couldn't do, that your family told you what you could do. Mm -hmm. And in this description of a relentless badass. (laughs) Yeah. Give us more context of that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I just don't let things go. People are like, oh my God, you're like a dog with a bone. I'm like, no, I'm a relentless badass. <laughs> I think that thing is way better than a dog with a bone, though I do love my dog and my dog does love their bone. It is about the continual pursuit of better. I won't say perfection because that's too much pressure for everybody, even myself. But if things can be better just to continue, even in the midst of not thinking it's possible. But when I do look back at you know, what my parents have been through, you know, my mom and her family, not not in my mom's time, but in my great, great grandparents' time, they were moved from reservation, they were given a land grant, that's when they were like separating people to separate language and all sorts of things. You know, my father comes from a family that, you know, of course, was enslaved. And when they finally uh, got their 40 acres and a mule, which they did get, and the government came and took the land and said that they hadn't paid their taxes. Now, we don't know if they paid the taxes or not, because the land actually is still sitting there. The house that my father was born in is still sitting there. So I think because of the vestiges of racism, which still exists today in institutional and systematic ways, you're always relentlessly trying to get what you deserve, you know, get that American dream, whatever that dream may be. So I think that's why I'm a relentless badass is that I believe in going after things. I believe in working alongside others to make that change and impact for others who are going through the same thing and not giving up. There are many days when I'm just like, I just can't. I have a little emoji where (laughs) I'm like falling over on the floor, my hand is on my head, and it's like, I can't even. And that's what the emoji says, and that's what I feel like many days where I just want to give up. And then I just try to look for that bright spot and go, no, there's still more to do. Or I'll go outside. I live here in Hollywood. I'll go outside and I'll meet someone, you know, who's unhoused in the moment, and we'll just sit and chat. And it's like, oh, there's more to do. Even if it might not be in my work situation, it will always be in my life. So I'm just a relentless badass that way. I love that because we all need to be relentless badasses because there is so much work left to do. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've heard you talk about that's so impactful is just how the narratives around mental health shape the somewhat toxic views people have. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you talk about those narratives and the history And what you've seen just working in this field for many years now. Yeah, so there are a couple of things which also gets at my relentlessness is that sort of globally, 
and why I was told, oh, well, you know, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, you'll never do that, meaning, you know, I'll never live on my own, I'll always be on medication, I'll never be able to work. They didn't say I would be institutionalized, but they did say that I would always live in some kind of congregate supportive setting, I would never live independently, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> um, because I had what was termed as a serious and persistent mental illness. And I'm like, hmm, persistent. So as soon as you start that kind of framing, then you start the Pygmalion effect. Meaning, if you tell me I'm going to be persistently ill, you will act in ways and you will treat me in ways and provide treatment in ways that have me achieve that persistent illness state. And I will believe it and I will also respond as such that, oh, okay, I have a persistent illness. I can only get to but this much because y'all said so, y'all are treating me that way, so it must be so. So I'm like, okay, but maybe really what it's about is persistent recovery. So I'll just like flip it around and say, well, maybe it's about persistent recovery and persistently getting better. And so I just had to flip that. So that's kind of how you also move to the relentless piece. So how all of this started, uh, you know, there's a DSM-1, which is like this little teeny tiny book and um, the diagnostic and statistical manual was a way for the field to be able to start to cluster and classify what was happening to people in order to figure out what treatments they might be able to provide. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, you don't want to be going blind and just doing stuff. So it makes sense. But during um, the time of the DSM-1 and the DSM-2, this was in uh, the 50s, it all sits within a cultural context of what was happening, especially in the Western world. So if we look in particular around sort of the wartime, women previous to uh, World War II, some of World War I, were not working. They were housewives. Uh, finished school, maybe you went to college. You went to college to get married, so you would go to college. You know, you would get married, then you would have your kids, and and you would take care of your kids and the house. When the war came along, and they really needed everybody to pitch in, then women actually started to go to work and started to do things to help with the war effort. But they still had to maintain the home, so they had this kind of double thing they had to do, and it was um, really quite a lot. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of things in the home to help women. For example, there weren't, you know, washing machines and dryers that were electric. You were still kind of doing the wash in a really kind of interesting old-fashioned way and all that kind of stuff. So the women were starting to really struggle through doing their daily activities, which is, I got to go to work. I got to go put the airplane pieces together. I got to go work in the factory or whatever. And then I've got to come home and I've got to take care of the kids and I've got to have dinner on the table for my husband. And when they weren't able to do that, it wasn't a social norm. So once it became not a social norm, it started to become something people could pathologize, the social context. So there are lots of advertisements in magazines that are geared towards the profession, meaning the doctors, really. They were in journals of medicine that were ads kind of portraying women as these broken women who couldn't take care of the house. And oh my gosh, you know, you've got to put them on Haldol or you have to put them on Thorazine. And it started to create a construct of if the woman isn't able to take care of the home and she shows up at the doctor's office saying she's stressed, then that became pathologized as a possible mental health condition. Let's institutionalize the woman and let's get her on some of these new medications. So we see some of the shifts in the DSM. And then by the 60s, and you see a lot of women, white middle-class women, 
um, hospitalized when you look at psychiatric hospital census. And they're hospitalized for quite long periods of time, actually. So in the 60s, you start to see a shift in what's happening, particularly in the United States, around the Vietnam War and civil rights and black power movement. And you start to see now African-Americans collectively working towards their rights in such a way that perhaps it was perceived as, well, no, I don't know. I don't know if they're supposed to be empowered. What's going on? Make it stop. So the ad shift from the white woman who's not able to take care of her kids in her home and she's just totally stressed out to now the advertisements change to very angry black men and they're belligerent and you want to control them. And so how do you control them? You give them these very powerful drugs called Haldol and you die diagnose them with schizophrenia. The actual classification um, now starts to add things like delusions, they're persecutory, they're grandiose. You know, here's this black man being grandiose, thinking somehow he deserves the same thing as everybody else. So we're going to like damp that down and get that guy under control, if you will. And that's what the ads actually look like. And the language is just as perverse, meaning um, the language does say things like, you know, uh, belligerent, get control through Haldol. And it's a picture of a black man. I mean, what else are you supposed to think if you don't sit it within its cultural context? So you see now, at that time, you see a decrease in the number of white women in um, psychiatric care and uh, explosion of African-American men in psychiatric hospitalization. Also diagnosed with schizophrenia, you start to see a, a huge increase. And quite frankly, we have never come down from that increase from, from then. So I think it's really interesting when we think about psychiatry and mental illness and not to say that it doesn't exist. We have mental health. If your mental health is compromised, any health is compromised, and you have an illness. That, I think, is a perfectly good way to, at least for me, to understand, yes, we all have mental health, and at times it cannot be at its best, and that becomes an illness. If we don't have the right nurturing, treatment, care, and supports, then it can get worse and worse and worse, just like anything else, and then it becomes severe. But it doesn't mean that you can't get back to whatever it is that you want to get back to, or get to. Sometimes you don't want to get back to where you were before. Sometimes you want to move forward into something brand new. So um, those things are quite possible. Ah, oh, wow. You just took me on a, an amazing journey. Uh, at the age of 16, I myself was hospitalized and I was diagnosed as a functional bipolar. And then at the age of 22, I was hospitalized. And later in the life, after experiencing homelessness, I was diagnosed as a paranoia schizophrenia. And the funny part is, is that I've never been undiagnosed yet and still uh, with the right supports and with the right resources and access to a way of living. There's nothing that I'm like today that is in comparison to what life was like then. Mm -hmm. And I think about the field and what they get right and what they get wrong. Because yet and still, I've never sat with anyone who was like, well, Lorraine, you're cured. Yeah. But yeah. my life is entirely different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For the many years that you've been working in, in the field, what have they gotten right and what have they gotten wrong? Oh, how long do we have? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have a running list on the blog, right? Uh, but anyway. Um, touch on the highlights. Touch on the highlights. Go, go to the high points. Let's see. So I think one thing is that we finally are starting to grapple with this notion of recovery. Now, there's a lot of 
you know, disagreement about exactly what is it, which seems sort of silly to me, like recovery is getting better, like, let's not get all deep about it. (laughs) You know, but but getting better in in what areas I think is, uh, and then how do we measure it? And what is the evidence based practice? And, you know, all these very kind of, I think, sometimes limiting things that come from a very, I hate to say, Western scientific sort of perspective. Part of uh, what, you know, we're kind of getting right is at least we can use the words recovery and think about what does that mean and start to say, okay, recovery is about getting better. And then the next piece of that is getting better in what life domains. When I worked at the federal government, uh, we helped to bring people from across the country, providers, people with lived experience of mental health conditions, parents and um, other family members and caregivers, policymakers, you name it. And then we sent it out to the public at large, anybody who wanted to contribute to their thoughts about how do you define this. We took all the information and they were able to cull it down to sort of four domains, and that is health, home, purpose, and community. So if you have those four domains, you can think about them, and I think about them as interrelated. So if my health is not going well, my home is probably impacted in some way. My ability to be involved in the community is probably impacted in some way. And then my social relationships are probably impacted some way, as is maybe my job or my vocation. They're interconnected. They're not separate each from each other. So I think we're starting to have a better understanding about how those aspects impact a person's mental health and how to think about who is going to do the work to help people get the supports that they need in order to shore up all of those different domains. So before it was like mental health would stay in its little corner of specialty mental health and we would just do the treatment on the mental health. And that treatment looked like therapy and meds. And now it looks much broader than that. We're understanding that social connection is vital for people. If you don't have social connection, whatever that can look like for people, right? So I'm an extreme introvert. So social connection for me looks like me being by myself texting someone (laughs) and I feel pretty darn connected. And then when I'm, you know, got my extroversion up, I'm out and about, right? But in order for me to be out and about and hang with people, I have to have my introversion time. So social connection can look different for different people, but it's important you're connected to someone in some way. So uh, what's happening in in mental health now is uh, specialty mental health, seeing the importance of putting all these pieces together and providing supports and services to help put all these pieces together that can either be offered through specialty mental health or it can be offered through adjunctive services that we try to coordinate with. The advancement of using people with lived experience of a mental health condition and their family members and their parents as part of the provider team and seeing these folks as um, quote-unquote professionals, if you will, meaning professionals I get paid and I'm following kind of a particular way of doing the work. Not that I'm going to like start talking like a doctor, not like that kind of profession. But um, now that we're starting to see peers and family advocates and parent advocates working within the mental health system and um, supporting people in their overall health and recovery, I think we're starting to finally recognize the importance of the social determinants of health and how that impacts a person's mental health. So we can do all the treatment we want, quite frankly, but if the social determinants of health are still lacking, it's very hard for a person to be maximally healthy. So I think there is more of 
an understanding or a movement afoot to understand the impacts of poverty, the impacts of not being housed or having stable housing, or having stable housing in a place that a person wants to be where they feel safe and loved. So it's not just about, oh, I got a house, I got a roof over my head, which is a start, but it, is it where the person wants to live? Is it with the people that the person wants to be around? And is it a safe place for them that they deem they feel they are safe? Those are some things that are starting to happen, which is um, great advancements in the field. Now, now, some things that not so advancing in the field is not everybody's on board with all of those great advancements in the field. So sometimes we have arguments about it and people are like, well, that's the medical model and that's the recovery model. I'm like, well, neither one of them are a model because we're not following them to the T as if you were building a you know, model airplane or a model boat or something like that. So they're both the same. It's just where are you spending either most of your funding or putting most of your emphasis. So as soon as somebody gets a diagnosis or feels that they have something going on that is impacting their mental health or health, at that point, the recovery journey starts. It has to. Otherwise, what are you doing? You want to go to the doctor to stay sick? That's like oxymoronic, right? So that's sort of, I think, something we're still trying to grapple with, that they're not an either-or, they're a both-and. The other areas where we haven't quite gotten it right is still seeing the supports that people need as these separate entities where the person has to chase them down. You know, in the morning, I've got to go to see my doctor and maybe have my therapy and then got to, you know, travel someplace else to go meet somebody to help me with another aspect of my um, whole health and well-being. Oh, dang, now I got to go way over there because somebody's going to help me with my education. Oh, now I got to go over here. And they didn't know I had an appointment. They forgot. So that's the part, the fragmentation part. Uh, We don't have it right. And we don't have mechanisms where if we wanted to bring the whole team together, and let's say I just sit down with my whole team, and I'm part of the team. I'm the person that has the concern or has, I have a mental health diagnosis, and my concern is, let's say it's housing, yet I want my psychiatrist there, I want my social worker there, I want the peer there, I want the substance use counselor there, and I want the case manager there. And then, oh, by the way, my family is so critically important because they're helping me out. I want my family there. And I want us all to meet at the same time and kind of say, okay, in the center of this table is the issue that we need to address. Who's going to do what and how? And if we did it that way, guess what? We can't bill for it because you can't have all those people billing at the same time because some, I hate to say it, federal agency, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, federal agencies, you know, has said, oh, only one provider can bill at one time as if somehow a person is split up into these ways versus seeing a person as a whole person. So I think that is probably our biggest struggle is figuring out how to create opportunities for all the people who need to work on an issue to help the person move forward in their recovery and well-being to be able to do it in a way where funding and policies don't get in the way. And I think that's a struggle for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think our entire reimbursement model, which is really focused on segmenting all these different things that people need. Well, now it's treatment planning for these 10 minutes, but these 10 minutes are helping someone with activities of daily living. And these 10 minutes are something different. Um, You know, it's basic care and support, but we make it so complicated. Yeah. It feeds that fragmentation, our whole approach. Yes, our approach is fragmented. And so we keep fragmenting the person And then we wonder why people are confused or find it hard to access and or stay in 
the care and treatment. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I think also when people um, experience crisis, whether it's because we weren't able to meet them earlier or that's just kind of what happens, there's such a difference between what happens to people in crisis from a health condition versus people in crisis from a mental health condition. And I know in the consumer movement, there's been lots of um, angst about, well, why do the police show up? I've been sort of struggling with that because if I were having a heart attack, I always use that if I were having a baby and I've never had a baby, so that one doesn't really work. Well, I've never had a heart attack either. But point <laughs> being, <laughs> if I were having a health crisis, all right, and I've seen people have health crisis, their first responders who show up and whoever shows up first is the first responder. So it could be the police, it could be the ambulance, it could be a fireman. So it could be those three things. Any of those three things can show up. If you're having a mental health condition, it's the police. Mm-hmm which says to me, okay, so let me think if I'm having a heart attack and the police show up, what do they do and how do they do it? Um, And I have seen this with a friend of mine who actually had a stroke. We were at a meeting and it's pretty clear she was having a stroke. So we called 911. The first person to show up was the police and then the ambulance came a little bit later, but police got there first. And it was just striking to me. And I'd never seen it before. And I started crying. And everybody was like, don't cry over your friend. And I'm like, I wish I was, but I'm really crying over what I'm seeing, which is they were so compassionate with her. They were so caring. They were touching and stroking her arm and asking, is she okay? And what could they do? And when she was refusing for them to do an IV, when the... um, When the ambulance came, she was refusing it, and they were okay with it. They said, we're okay with that for now, but we we really don't want your uh, systems to start shutting down, so we need to keep you pumped with fluids, but we're okay with that for now. Do you want to hold my hand? Like, all of this compassion, I was like, what in God's name is that? You know, when it's mental health, it's kind of like, you know, got my gloves on, you know, and of course now we want to have our gloves on, but I'm just saying, um, you know, it's, it's coming from a a safety and fear before a health crisis. Um, And it's twisted. And I think people have a hard time understanding why we have some concern about police response. I say police are community members, they're peace officers, and they're first responders, including health. And yes, they also, you know, kind of have to protect us. But when they're coming in this situation, they're not coming in any of those roles except the protection, safety, fear role. And then they tell us, well, you have a a health condition. And it's like, but you're not treating me like I have a health condition. So the whole thing is so upside down. You show up into uh, an emergency room, and the emergency room situation, again, is very, very different for health than it is for mental health. You know, for health, for what I've experienced myself and what I've seen, again, very compassionate. Everything is fully explained. Your family is allowed to come into the room. Lots of comforting and reassuring and empowerment. You don't want to do that right now? Okay, we're gonna, we'll give it a couple minutes. Let's just give it a couple minutes and see what happens. Mental health side, no, your family's not allowed in. People are yelling at you if you're not able to answer a question. People are standing over you in very imposing ways if you're sitting down or they're telling you to sit down if you're not sitting down or they're strapping you down if you're not sitting down. The whole thing is perverse. That might be very triggering for people, so I apologize. But I think it's important for us to understand and help the general public understand why sometimes the reaction that they see when people are taken in for care is a natural human reaction, sort of a pushback or even a protection of themselves. Even if they can't verbalize it, they're doing it in their body language. I always say it's kind of like physics. Every action has an opposite 
an equal reaction until uh, you can finally kind of get control over these two actions happening against each other. And that's what it kind of looks like in mental health is I yell at you, then you yell back. Then I yell louder, then you yell back. Then I stand over you to kind of impose myself on you so that you sit down. Then I stand up to impose myself on you. And this kind of continues until finally somebody gets a booty shot. And then it becomes about control. So I think that's where we get it wrong. That if we really step back and thought about it, and thought about how we're treating people, not illnesses and symptoms, but people, maybe there might be some more compassion. And again, I don't want to blame the doctors because sometimes it's the systems that force us to do this too. And I don't think doctors got in this profession or police got in this profession by any means to be seen as the perpetrator of violence or trauma or quote unquote iatrogenic, meaning the care itself is causing illness or symptoms to rise up. I don't think anybody got in it for this reason. I think we've defaulted to this way and we don't know how to get out. Sort of sad. And I want to ask you explicitly about involuntary treatment, because we've seen as there's been a rise in people experiencing homelessness on the sidewalks. We've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of conversation about involuntary treatment um, and that we should be doing more so that we can involuntarily treat more people. My question is treat them to what? So if we're talking about involuntary treatment to beds, which is what I've heard kind of sometimes the language, a bed is a place you sleep. That's great. But what's happening with that bed? Like who's there? What are the services? What are the supports? And then once a person is short up, where are they going? Where where are they going after? So is this just a Band-Aid kind of thing? I'm really not quite sure. I'm not a fan of involuntary stuff. Um, And quite frankly, it's because I'm an African-American person. I wasn't native to the United States of America as a black person. I got here some way or another. And it wasn't because there was a choice. So um, this idea of taking away somebody's freedom for the sake of health, I always struggle with because of the history of enslavement of Black, African, and other peoples. It just doesn't resonate with me. Um, At the same time, I understand when somebody is very, very ill with whatever, meaning whether it's a mental health issue, whether it's a health issue, whether it's a brain tumor, whether it is whatever, and they're not able to make decisions, somebody needs to help make those decisions. If there's nobody there to make those decisions, like we haven't filled out paperwork, then perhaps, yes, something has to be involuntarily done to either save them or save other people around them. Sometimes people used to think, oh, she's this radical advocate. I'm actually not that radical. In my NAMI affiliate, you know, I've seen some incredible things. I've known a family that was intact with somebody who was working towards their recovery and something happened and he killed his mother. So I know what this is. I know it firsthand, not from having been in the family, but knowing the family, knowing every single person in that family. So how do I justify not involuntary or involuntary when something like that happens? Also, when I did work for a peer-run organization, we provided um, services to people who were uh, incarcerated and soon to be released. And so we've seen people who have been in Twin Towers Jail, for example, here in, in Los Angeles. So it's not like these things are abstract. They're real either from my personal experience and or real from the provider perspective experiences as a peer. So I'm very careful when I think about involuntary mechanisms to coerce people to treatment. That's the way I like to think about it. I don't think about it as involuntary treatment. It's a mechanism to get the person to the treatment. 
So I asked myself, but what is the treatment? And if it isn't gold standard, if it isn't effective, then why are we forcing people to it? When we're talking about um, beds, again, um, what happens in those beds, um, sometimes, you know, our ERs are just so overwhelmed. You know, I've seen some very interesting things where people are identified as dangerous and they have a colored card on their bed, you know, note to everybody that person is dangerous. So the staff know and the staff have instructions about what they're supposed to do, meaning don't get but six feet away, that kind of thing. But I know that the bed isn't six feet away from the next person who does not have that card. So the next person to them possibly is in danger and six feet away from somebody who may be perceived as dangerous. Is it possible that by not having the connection, they continue to act in ways that will get them the connection rather than giving them the connection in ways that can keep everybody safe. So I have a lot of concern about using involuntary mechanisms without really digging deep and wide to understand what are some of the other things that we could be doing earlier and often and more of? You know, why do we have a housing issue? Is it because people are, uh, have a serious mental health condition that causes them not to go into treatment? They don't believe they have it. They don't want to go into treatment. Maybe they don't like our treatment. You know, does our treatment need to be different? Does it need to be flexible enough to meet people where they are and where they would like to start their recovery journey so that we can get that engagement, we can get that relationship? And it's the relationship that will move their ability to partner with folks better. Um, If you don't have the relationship, they're not going to partner with you. Somebody was telling me the other day, well, you know, I have a criminal justice degree. And with this criminal justice degree, I'm really short up to work with people. And I'm like, please don't tell the people you have a criminal justice degree. (laughs) I was begging them. I said, maybe a better approach would be, yes, you might be able to use the book learning and the degree learning to inform some of the work that you're doing, but to kind of tell a person that this is that gives you the legitimacy that's probably going to make the person not see you as legitimate. Sometimes I think we forget that we're working with humans and what is human behavior. And when the behavior goes out of what we have control over, then we get the control back by doing things that are involuntary. I was outside of LA for quite some time, for about six years. I will say that the six years that I was gone, I could see the situation in LA escalating as far as those that are unhoused. I couldn't understand it. And I would see the same buildings empty year after year, and then more empty buildings and more empty houses and more. I'm thinking, but we have, how we have, we have, what, what? <laughs> People, oh, we don't have any housing. And I'm like, there's tons of it, but it's empty. Why is it empty? You know, where really is our problem? Is it not having ways to ensure that those who are sitting on property and maybe waiting for a return on investment don't have any accountability to ensuring that there's affordable housing because they're sitting actually on the affordable housing. Involuntary treatment to me, it's a Band-Aid and it's the wrong target. The target ends up almost blaming the person, not really holding the systems, the communities responsible for doing what they're supposed to be doing. In the world of responsibility, I know there's a lot that is needed to be accounted for. I'd like to hear your insight on the intersections of race, mental illness, and homelessness. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> you, you can't separate them, I don't think. I mean, I, I think we've seen, of course, some of the statistics and data, I'm, and I'm not one of those to kind of spout that off very well. But you know, when you, again, sort of have institutional and systematic racism, especially for African Americans, other communities of color, it's going to impact our mental health and well-being. The way that we think about psychiatry, and there's a new word that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, but um, there's a movement afoot in global mental health to decolonize psychiatry, meaning that psychiatry comes from a very colonial Western viewpoint. But if your distress is from a cultural viewpoint that is not Western, what do you do? Well, we kind of impose this Western way of working with people on non-Western folks, and then they don't kind of get better. And I could attest to kind of understanding how that works and how that feels. So I think you can't segregate out a person's context, their culture, their understanding of that culture and meaning and purpose of what's happening to them in their life around their health and well-being and what may help them get better, as well as understanding that trying to go and get an apartment even though there are laws against you know, racism and redlining, doesn't mean that those things still don't happen. I have shown up before where you can't tell what my ethnicity is from my name. I mean, I have an umlaut over the A in my middle name, which is a German symbol or Swedish symbol that people recognize as European. My first name is like, what the heck is that? They don't even know what that is. And then my last name is like, well, what is that? They don't know what that is either. So when I show up and they see me, all of a sudden the apartment's gone. And I can't prove the apartment's gone or not. I don't have money to get a lawyer to find out whether or not. And do I even want to live in that apartment if somebody has just looked at me and decided all of a sudden the apartment's gone? So we can't extract these experiences of people of color from the things that can happen um, relative to their health and well-being, um, their housing situations. And don't add LGBTQ on it because that'll just take us down a whole nother road, just a whole nother road. Yeah. Um, you have talked about flipping the script, um, and I'd love to hear about what flipping the script means and how we move towards really providing care and support um, for people living with mental health conditions. To me, flipping the script has been a little bit about what we've been talking about all along, which is instead of thinking of people as persistently ill, thinking of people as persistently in recovery. So I've just flipped the script. I've turned it upside down. I've changed the target. Instead of thinking that I have to resolve the symptoms in order to move forward in other aspects of life, I flip it and say, but what is the issue that's of most concern to the person, regardless of the symptoms that are in front of me? Um, We work with people who are experiencing homelessness or unhoused. We work with people who also have mental health and substance use conditions, and we get them jobs in the Peer Resource Center. We know who we is now, but, you know, so peers can help people to be employed, even in the midst of experiencing homelessness, because they've been in that situation themselves. So they know how to negotiate, for example, with the shelter. If the shelter opens up at five, but the person is just getting off work and then needs to get into the shelter to go to bed so that they can get up and go to that next shift, we're able to help negotiate with the shelter to let the person come in early so that they can get the sleep they need so that they can get moving on with their job. So those are some of the things that have to be flipped is that our goal is to help people flourish, not to kind of help people relieve symptoms. What are life goals? My life goal is not to take meds. That's not a goal. I might have to take meds for the rest of my life, but it's not a goal. 
So flipping where our attention is to things that are far more life-affirming and flourishing for people. So that's what I mean by flipping the script. Just kind of turning things upside down. Thank you. It has been such a pleasure to hear from you and to have your insight. And moving into the future, what is your vision for working toward housing justice? I'd like to see our various advocacy groups come together better. Sometimes our consumer and peer advocacy is over here fighting the very same fight, but kind of in a different way. And again, talking about the intersectionality, I mean, power in numbers, you know what I mean? So how do our peer advocates, our consumer advocates, family advocates come together with our housing advocates, really kind of moving towards understanding that critical piece of housing that impacts a person's um, health and well-being? One of the things that I remember is when I was with NAMI and there wasn't enough housing for people, the fight was for housing vouchers. And I thought, hmm, I went and I fought for housing vouchers. Then when I got a housing voucher, I realized how not very helpful it was. You can't live in a voucher. You can't fold it up and kind of put it over your head and kind of put your bed under it and live in a voucher. The voucher has to be attached to a unit. So we would get more vouchers, we wouldn't get more units. So it became a longer period of time. You had to get on waiting list. We were fighting for the wrong thing. And again, not to say that vouchers aren't valuable, but it would be kind of nice if there was a one-to-one correlation of vouchers and housing. So I think maybe had we been aligned with those who were doing housing justice work, we could have been fighting a larger battle and we all would have won rather than just us winning our little piece of the pie. So that would be it. Thank you so much, Karis. It's been a real pleasure having you on today. Thank you. Thank you. We're closing out today's episode with a poem by Suzette Shaw that we recorded at the Housing Justice Summit and that is introduced by Lorraine. If somebody in this room does not know Suzette Shaw, you are definitely going to remember her after this moment. Suzette Shaw has been the fearless voice for the Skid Row community from the moment that I met her. And I want to thank you for agreeing to be here and to bless us with the poem. So will you please come up and do that? Thank you. The journey. They start off as interns. We start off as homeless. We will work side by side. You as an intern, me as an advocate. In the community daily, while in the thick of it. While you work on your college degree, you'll use my work as your thesis, while I labor for free. As you climb the ladder and you move up the ranks and become a member of the elite think tank, From a cubicle to a corner office with a view, you become new, relabeled with an expert point of view. Unhoused, we will be lucky if we move from the streets to a shelter and end up in an SRO in the heart of Skid Row. On equal footing, we will both be community stakeholders while you and the other 501c3s plan a community takeover. I had no other place to go. Skid Row, my home, as I would come to know. You will gain stature from being known as Becky to Miss Rebecca with her PhD. That's right, 
the expert world renowned with her earned her undergrad stripes in the hood hype. You'll go on to get your master's while stealing your laid back tathers. Then you'll get your PhD and be considered as the expert of me. My trauma will be merely labeled as drama. My trials be, will become my testimony. I'm no phony. My title will become known as grassroots advocate. With all your expertise, yeah, you don't know the half of it. We will go from being friends to separated by three degrees. Someone I used to know, but you'll become distant while building your life. You're being considered as an appointment as a fellow. Now you can barely say hello. Someone I will distantly come to know in the crowd as far as the eyes can see, the current existence of we. Yep, we will go from looking each other in the eyes as allies to someone I will no longer have to rely. Your title will get fancier. Us running into each other will get chancier. You'll travel more extensively. The few blocks around me, the most I'll probably see. This zip code will probably be the last I know. Here is probably where we will live until we die and God calls us home. The journey of you and me separated by three degrees. Thank you. Suzette Shaw, everybody. We hope that you'll keep listening and subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please reach out by emailing us at housingjusticepodcast. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your questions and we will have a question and answer episode later in the season. So reach out and ask any question you have about homelessness in LA. Housing Justice LA is Lorraine Cantley. Molly Reisman. Bill Lance. New Dad. Our music is provided by Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Anne English for her support and work on the CSH Speak Up program. This podcast is produced on Tongva land in Los Angeles and made possible through a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation.